Must be like the wolf pack, not like six pack. Teamwork. Yes. Hello and welcome to another episode of There's No I In Podcast, a podcast about teams. It's about being in teams. It's about leading teams. It is about making the most out of the teams that you are in. My name is Mark Johnson. I'm a performance teacher and a performance maker, and I am joined as always. And it's been a little while by my partner in pod, head of sport and co-curricular at our shared workplace, Sean Gallagher, ladies and gentlemen. How are you doing, Sean? Hey Mark, thank you. What an introduction. Yeah, it's been a little while, but it's been nice to get back on mic, so to speak. It takes a little warm up, but you get back into the swing of things quite quickly, don't you? Yeah, especially when you get, you know, really good guests and conversation just flows and and they're really interesting. And we certainly had that on today's episode. Yeah, so we're not going to chat for very long now because I want to get straight into it. But today we're going to be talking to Phil Denton and Phil is uh, a head teacher, kind of as his day job, but he's written this incredible book. Like, and I... God, as a as a podcast host, who you know, we try and we try and get the the guests. You and I, um, this guy's written a book, a hundred, uh, the first hundred days lessons uh, from the football bosses, where he's gone around and he has managed to talk to in conversation, extended conversation with premiership managers, uh, premiership coaches. And that's phenomenal. Absolutely. Yeah. And obviously co co-written with uh, Mickey Mellon, which is the kind of connection uh, in there into the uh, football world. Um, and yeah, we get into it and some really, really fun and interesting stuff. Uh, Phil was really generous with his time. Um, and it seems as though the, the football managers and bosses were, were really generous to, to him with theirs as well. So he got a lot of stuff. Let's jump straight into that. Then this is, uh, Phil Denton and our chat. So we are hugely privileged to have on the podcast today, uh, Phil Denton. Phil is a head teacher and uh, the co-author of The First 100 Days, Lessons in Leadership from the Football Bosses. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. Good morning, Mark. Morning, Sean. Morning, Phil. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I don't like in one sentence, I don't think I can really summarise what it is you do and the journey that you've been on. So if you wouldn't mind for everyone out there, just giving us a little rundown on your history and your journey and how you've got to where you are today and, and having written the book. Yeah, well, I'm a, a head teacher in the northwest, uh, in Ormskirk in the northwest. And I've been a head teacher now. Actually, it's my four year anniversary this week. Um, well, head school and then head teacher. Uh, and I've worked at different places, different schools professionally. So I worked uh, initially at a school in Wigan and then moved to Rochdale. In between, actually, in between that, I worked in Saudi Arabia as well. Uh, when I was in Rochdale, I got on a headship fast track program, the Future Leaders program, uh, and uh, sort of rocketed up the education hierarchy far too quickly <laughs> until I didn't really know what I was doing. Uh, yeah, very quickly, uh, but caught up along the way. Uh, now, so now I'm a head teacher in, as uh, I say, in Ormskirk. And over the last uh, couple of years, I've written a book with uh, a football manager called Mickey Mellon. And that book has allowed me to go meet some of the top Premier League managers and along the way pick up lots of things that they do, specifically in their first 100 days to make sure that they give themselves the best chance of being successful. And what I've managed to do is, is kind of e- extract those things and utilise them in my role as a, a head teacher 
And what what I did in my first 100 days as a head teacher is actually run the school like a football club using the lessons from these Premier League managers. So along the way, it was very fun, um, really interesting. And then when the book came out, everybody realised what we'd done. <laughs> <laughs> the, se- the secret was given yeah. away. The source was revealed. Um, and when you were teaching, what was your subject? Were you a sports teacher? No, I was a history teacher. So I think all the best head teachers are history teachers. Controversial, <laughs> but uh, yeah, history teacher. So I taught history. Also a bit of um, a bit of PE in Saudi Arabia as well. But history is my was my main subject. Um, history is a, a real passion as well, and I think the subject itself lends itself to to looking at people from the past who maybe been leaders or made fantastic decisions made awful decisions and then exposing the narrative and that and understand the narrative of it is uh is part of the part of the uh skill set i suppose that's allowed me to write the book and uh, and do the job that i do as well what was it that kind of kicked off the book in the first place what was the uh, the connection that you made with mickey that kind of led to you going hang on a second there's a book in this yeah yeah it was really it was i mean I, i'm a big football supporter um, my, my team is uh, nowhere near the Champions League. They're called Tram- <laughs> Trammy Rovers. So the, the nearest we've got is the uh, Papa John's Trophy final. Um, That's a big one, though, Phil. Let's be it honest. It is a big one. It big is, pizza it, party at the end it, of it, if you it, win. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so my team, Trammy, um, had uh, Mickey was the manager. I went to watch one of their away games. Uh, it was in Stevenage, which is a lovely place in the world. Really enjoyed going to Stevenage. Um, and just happened to stay in the same hotel. It was it was a rare. I don't usually go to the away games, but I went with my wife. It was the first away game of the season, and I'm, I can't really work out how I managed to convince her that that would be a, a great thing to do on a weekend without the kids. But I managed to do it. <laughs> um, and we uh, in the morning, I, I bumped into uh, Mickey in the gym. So I was up early, went to that to the uh, hotel gym, and I suppose it, it would be the same as meeting anybody. The, the sort of sporting hero that you've seen on the sideline that he just got us promoted as a manager uh he talked a lot about uh culture and representing the supporters um making people on the on the Wirral in quite a deprived area feel proud of where they come from again and i'll really uh, I, I read a lot about leadership anyway i really liked the way he connected with people and the way he, be, he, he built rapport with um members of the community that he might never meet and he also instilled a kind of winning mentality that had gone, in, 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 particularly in, in the organisation that was the football club. So all the reading that I'd done, I, I was picking out bits, he, the way he was approaching it, and I was fascinated by it. So when we met, we initially talked a little bit about the promotion the season before, but then quite quickly got onto leadership and talking about educational leadership and, um, um, and leadership in sport. And uh, Mickey was much more... Uh, open than I could have expected really and we, we, we talked everything we talked things from Ernest Shackleton to discipline in football and education and um, routines and systems that were quite similar and we actually went until about three hours to the point that my wife my, my wife was ringing me saying you are going to come for your breakfast aren't you and as soon as I got there she said I know what's happened you bumped into one of the players or the manager haven't you in the gym so I said, yeah. And then, but while we were in the gym, Mickey said, I think you could really help us at the club. So 
like there any football fan that heard that like oh gosh yeah. when do you Absolutely. want me do you want my, shall I get my boots do you want me to yeah, play right back come on yeah. <laughs> but, unfortunately uh, uh, well fortunately he's never seen me play football so he uh, <laughs> that wasn't uh, the reason but we, we kept in touch um, and we talked a lot about educational and, and leadership literacy uh, and it ended up meeting up for a meal with a couple of other people from Tranmere uh, and it was very very informal and when we have that when we had that uh, meeting that we were talking about working on a project together and it was then that he, he said what about this 100 days he'd read books about the first 100 days I'd read books about the first 100 days and in a leadership sense and also you know the American presidency particularly under Roosevelt um, and, he, and uh, we thought this had never been done in football and, and if there's ever a 100 days which makes or breaks a career football is a shining example of that and an, an absolute magnifying glass on, on the decisions that people make. Whether you like football or not, um, it, it's if you don't get those first 100 days right, um, that'll be the last 100 days you have as a football manager, for, for statistically, for many football managers. Whereas a head teacher or a head of department or an office manager, you can get away, away with a lot more than 100 days not doing your job particularly well. Um, so the, the idea was born out of that. And the more we thought about how uh, football could teach us an awful lot about the first 100 days, the, the more interesting the, the idea uh, became. Uh, Mickey's obviously got a lot of the contacts in football, so it wasn't a case of going through publicists or agents. It was a text message to Mick Phelan, the Manchester United assistant manager, saying, do you mind if we speak with Ollie for two or three hours? And, you know, yeah. When do you want to come in? One of the one of the big pulls was that it's all for charity, so we haven't made mm. a, we didn't want to make a penny out of it. We haven't made a penny out of it, um, and all the money's gone to multi neuron disease. So I think managers then we, we had a really unique insight because they knew we were coming in for that. They knew it was very specific, so they knew what we were going to talk about. We weren't going to try to catch them out, and they also knew that all the money was going to a brilliant cause. So they were really open with us, and I think we got a lot of. Um, conversation that we would have never have had had it been a had it been an official route that we'd have gone down. Unfortunately, a lot of the best stuff was preempted with "You can't put this in the book," but this happened. <laughs> so <laughs> there is another book to, to write with that in that'll never get written. The, wor- the worst hundred days. <laughs> yeah, 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 things he won't have expected to happen in the first hundred days. Um, but it was. I mean, for me as a football fan, it was just. Fascinating because I was sat at Carrington or at Burnley's training ground with these Premier League managers um, who I've watched on the telly for a long time, no different to any other football fan, and being welcomed in and sitting down having a cup of coffee with them and being able to ask them anything. Um, it was it was an unbelievable experience and professionally has, has helped me uh, more, I would say, than any MPQH or anything like that. Um, it's been a tremendous uh, professional experience that I hope people who read it will get from the book as well. Phil, honestly, like the the kind of story to to how the book came about is is brilliant in itself. Just you know, a, a three hour gym session where did you actually get a workout in in the end, or did it just turn into a chat? 
Yeah, I was going to say a three-hour gym session, Sean, is probably not the most accurate <laughs> way of describing it. It was, uh, it was three hours in the gym. Sure, oh, they were just leaving it at that. Yeah. Just, just the location Followed was accurate. Followed by a buffet breakfast. Yes, uh, that was it, yeah, which was three hours. I was going to say, I think, obviously, we don't have uh, Mickey uh, with us for this conversation, but it, it must speak a lot for for him as you said before with regards to connections he's made and relationships he's built on to be able to get those sort of people uh to sit down within the room so i think we, we can speak on that where like you said he's been in the game a long time but he's created a lot of these relationships and we can be in all different industries and be good at our jobs but not necessarily be able to network or to be able to lean on people for favors and things like that because we maybe haven't spent that real time with those people or given our time to them. Um, did you really feel that with Mickey, that he had that with lots of different people within the industry? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the way uh, we were greeted when we went to places um, in, interviewing people like Sam Allardyce, uh, Mickey was uh, a player in one of his teams. So Sam uh, was, that they're still... Uh, very much almost like a mentor and a student but I would say probably more of a more of a, a level field, playing field now um, I opened up about everything and it was more deciding what was beneficial to the learning in the book than the, the sort of salacious nature of, the, of, of any of it if you like and there, no, there wasn't really anything because it was talking about leadership and and uh, and strategies and approaches but it, it people did really did open up and they were also very receptive so um, when we spoke with um, David Moyes um, mentioning his first 100 days at United, they talked about um, the CEO of the club. He started as well. So during that conversation, it dawned on um, David Moyes where he said, well, actually, not only was it my first 100 days, but it was his first 100 days as well. And he didn't recognise that. And the more we unpicked that United situation... We used a model called the STARS model when you start your first 100 days in understanding your organisational context. So you've either got a start-up, which is brand new, you've got a turnaround situation, which most of the time in football, I'd say they are. You've got um, an accelerated growth where somebody's doing quite well, uh, a realignment or sustaining success. So I think a lot of the United managers that went into that job initially went in thinking that it was a sustaining success maybe an accelerated growth. But the club itself is very different to the one that you, you would see on from outside the stadium, just around the corner from where I live. It, very different. So you, you look at that club and you think um, it is a blue chip company, international, multinational company, which it is. Inside it, right at the core of it, is an industrial, hardworking family club. Um, and that's for the people on the, on the front desk who've been there for 50 years. The lady we met, Kath, she's been, she was Samat Busby's PA. She's still a receptionist at the club. Um, and it's those sort of people, that family, that I think a lot of people didn't appreciate when they first went in. And in terms of the position, that was United at the time was a turnaround situation. But I don't think, I don't think a lot of the people at the club, the onlookers, saw that's what it was. They thought it was sustaining success because they just won the league the year before. And, and Phil, is that where, you know, we can all have our opinions on Oli and, and United's current current form and success or, or or lack of it? But, you know, they just finished second in the Premier League um, and it seems as though that's the part 
that he has nailed down because he was part of the club before. It seems as though he has rebuilt relationships. It seems he does understand that culture. Um, so, you know, results being one thing. And as I said, very successful season in, in some areas, second in the Premier League, Champions League football next year. But it feels as though, like you're saying, there was a lot more under the bonnet that needed maybe sorting out in-house that the general public wouldn't see. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what Ollie was so good about. And it, and it, uh, with Ollie, it's not necessarily um, completely conscious, although he's a, he's a, he's a very intelligent very intelligent fella, um, but he's completely authentic. Um, I was really impressed, as I mentioned, when he arrived at United, that it was like arriving at a, a, a semi-pro club on a Saturday afternoon, um, wow. the training ground, in terms of the when you get past the glitz and the glamour, they've got a big glass walkway where they've got all the players that made it from the youth centre uh, on one side, the academy, that made it to the first team training ground. Um but when you walk in, there's a real family feel to it. Ollie came, didn't send somebody down to meet us. He walked down the stairs himself, came to meet us, walked up with us, held all the doors open, made me a cup of coffee. And you, you very quickly forget you're sitting with the Sonny who scored the winning goal in the Champions League final, who's now leading the, the United. He had a phone call from his wife when we were there about picking his kids up from football, you know, real normal stuff. And he talked about reminding the players that they were playing for Manchester United again. Um, he did things like brought back the, the blazers that they used to wear, those kind of famous old black United blazers with a badge on. They used to have a system in the, in the um, canteen where the management, the coaching staff had a table and nobody sat on that table other than them. So we got rid of that and said, we all sit together when we eat. They had different departments. They brought departments together. They opened the doors. They have like a player liaison, which basically do everything for the players. So paying utility bills, sorting out parking fines, those sort of things. And they were the first people that the players saw when they came in in the morning. And they basically pampered the players. So his thing was, if you can't sort out a parking bill, you're going to struggle to play in front of 75,000 on a, on a Saturday if you can't kind of figure that out on a basic level. So he moved that to another place in, in the building. Um, they, they, they brought voices from like the youth coaching staff and asked for their input. Everybody's input's welcome. So was, there's a real collegial development at United that you might not see from the outside, but the club will get better and better and better. And they'll keep getting better because of um, the long-term growth of United because it's, in, it's there now. It's a different model, you know, and, and they might get a new CEO who decides that's not what we want. We want success next season. Is Ollie the next best person for that to clear to clear out? I, I don't know, really. I mean, there, there might be somebody who can come in, but that's not worked before. Um, I, I think if you were to ask him, honestly, away from, uh, w would you have the same squad of players if you could start from scratch and have these... I don't think anybody would say that. You know, I, certainly as a, as, a, as a head teacher, sometimes you think if you were going to recruit every role in the school, would you recruit everybody back into that role? You probably wouldn't. No, you probably wouldn't. But because it's that's not life. And football supporters sometimes think, we'll get rid of that player, get rid of that player. But it, it's not as easy as that. Everybody's got constraints on money, even if those constraints are £80 million to buy a player. You, the player you might want might be £100 million. You know, um, so I think 
what he's doing there is authentic, real. Uh, it won't change. Um, he will continue to evolve. The team will continue to evolve. But the fact that I think you see those players enjoying the football, getting better every season, I think you'd have to say that really, season on season. The players are improving, the team's improving. And, and I heard him say that you can't measure progress by trophies. And I think that's right, um, even though he was slated by a lot of people for saying that. Progress is long-term. If you want short-term victories, you can maybe have somebody else, but you will keep turning over. I think he is absolutely in keeping with the culture of that club. If you talk about, you know, Chelsea is not in the keeping of, of Chelsea's culture of leadership and management. It's just, that's just a different culture. It's not better or worse. It's just different. We like rotation, Phil. We're, we're yeah. big on leadership rotation. <laughs> yeah. that's, a, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. That's the but, political um, spin on it. Yeah, yeah. But So I think having the confidence, seeing somebody like that, when you see somebody who's really calm, really clear, but also very human, recognises that, that um, there is stress to things and there is, there is uh, he's, he's, he's very humble about it and, and quite vulnerable as well in the way he spoke. Seeing somebody like that doing the job that he does gave me a lot of calmness and clarity in, in the, in the long-term sort of architectural way that I lead my school. So there is something in that that you're describing uh, about the mode of leadership um, that it sounds like you quite connected to that is not kind of iconoclastic yeah. in, in, in that way, but structural, architectural you, you you said that and it and it rem, it makes me think of something i read something you wrote quite recently um and one of the kind of headings within it was that uh, goals win matches culture wins trophies and i think you would probably extend that beyond even winning trophies but this idea of culture builds organizations that survive and thrive uh when someone comes into an organization with a different and you might have spoken to someone who uh, encountered this where they're walking in with a strong experienced sense of the culture they need to create but they're meeting not that did anyone talk about how they tried in that first in that first hundred days to shift towards what they were going to do because when when you talk about Manchester United and this kind of going back to was there anyone who was having to kind of move it on into something completely new yeah, I think what the, what the best coaches did was they understood what the situation required. So um, Sean Dyche, for example, at Burnley, he went into Burnley and he uh, took over from Eddie Howe. Now, for anybody who's listening who doesn't know, Eddie Howe's a, a fantastic coach, many, many successful years at Bournemouth. He's got clubs, that, now he's not got a club, but he's got clubs around, probably I'm sure around the world, chomping at the bit to get him. Um, but when he went to Burnley, he tried to put in the same style and culture that he had at Bournemouth into Burnley. And Burnley is a, a very passionate town with the football. It's based around the football club, really. Um, they are underdogs. They're the fighters. Um, they um, they they uh, achieve against all the odds. So he understood all that. So when he went into the club, that's what he he spoke about. So if, if it was a, a, a sense of understanding your audience and understanding the situation, uh, one of the, one of the uh, things that he did was he talked about um, 
about the players. He said, I can't guarantee we'll win matches, but I can guarantee that the players will have sweat on the shirt. And it's that kind of language that the fans are like, yeah, okay, we're not going to win all our matches, but those players are going to try their best. And it doesn't it doesn't give you guaranteed success. He he called those things sticky words. It doesn't guarantee success, but it does give you a good chance of being successful. Um so in terms of going in and changing a culture, what uh, Sam Allardyce does when he goes into clubs that are struggling, and I think he did improve West Brom, but they were probably too far gone. Um, but in other clubs he's gone into and really shifted a culture around, he's gone in and, and established a shared goal, which quite often is survival in the Premier League. So he said, right, so if you want to survive, these are the things you're going to have to do objectively. You're going to have to stop conceding as many goals, you're going to have to get the ball in the opposition half more often and you're going to have to create more chances. And then it's up to the strikers to score. But stop conceding the goals. It's like a blueprint that he had. So he would have a set three, four, five, six weeks that he would put the players through. Um, and they would start, if they did what he said, they would start to improve in those areas. So that culture is very much mechanical, whereas other other places like Burnley, where they were doing quite well in the championship at the time, that was more the cultural um, long-term approach to things and taking them back to their roots. I think the, the big point from what you just asked, Mark, the big question is the leaders that fall short or fall down will try and create a culture that they think is right for that organisation without understanding that organisation before they set to work. So a big part of the our research and the writing that we did was about doing your homework first and really understanding what you were walking into. That period of time pre the 100 days to say, like, what's the turf? What's the landscape already? Yes, and is, are the fa- Are the fans the like the biggest part of that? Because it does, it reminds me a little bit, Sean, you might back me up. When we spoke to uh, Danny Thompson from Sydney FC and this relationship that they invested in the communication with the fans and being able to say, you guys are going to care 100%. We kind of own, like, as long as you know we care 100% as well, we'll all be fine. Like you were saying, wins or not, uh, that that fan relationship, does that become integral to understanding that landscape or is it more about what's what's going on within the four walls? I think it's it's everything. that the, the fan relationship gives you time and support. Um, then you've also got to consider your backroom staff, your the different players that you've got in your team. So some of them will be at the point of wanting to see out the last two years. Some of them will be at the point of starting their career. So you've got all that going on. You've also then got your board. So the chairman needs to be happy that there's a, there's a commercial side to things. Um, so there are different audiences there. The, the most powerful one, is probably the supporters because it makes it more difficult um, if if you've got the supporters. But the supporters are only they will they will go with you for a period of time. But you've got to win, yeah. um, and then you become oh well he's just he's just nice yeah. rather than he's uh, and if you berate your players or that's a really nice way of putting it. The the, the fans the supporters give you time to get it right. But you do actually have to get it right in the end. Absolutely. You have to win. You have to win. And whether it's sport or it's education, ultimately you have to start getting results. You have to start increasing your admission numbers. You have to start generating a more positive turnover. 
And if you're not doing that, but all the parents like you, then yeah. again, that, that can sometimes cause quite a divisive situation. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, there's, there's, a, there's a real um, complexity to the relationships that you have, but relationships are at the heart of everything. I was, I was going to say, just going back to the Sam Allardyce um, point, Phil, I think sometimes if we do take the Premier League, but then you can, you know, we can we can link that to schools as well. He always does have an established goal because more times than not, it's premiership survival. And, you know, human beings, I think in the most part, one thing simple, you know. And so for a bunch of players, 25 players plus backroom staff, like you said, they just want to hear what the goal is. So is that to win the Premier League or is that survival? Sam Allardyce can go in there, structure a survival plan. And we all know every single day we come into work, it's to stay up by one point, by goal difference, by hook or crook. It's by staying up. I think sometimes that's an easier leadership kind of goal than when you are maybe in that mid midsection you know, Burnley now are an established football team. So what is next for them? Wolves, what is next for them? Everton, they're always there, thereabouts, you know. So if we move that into a school, I think it can sometimes be really difficult for, say, a head teacher or leadership um, to know what is that goal. You know, because sometimes we want to be the best in every single area as a school. And I think that that's, a, you know, something to work towards. But what is our school about? You know, are we hugely academic? Are we more uh, looking at the, 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 the student as, an, as a whole uh, and, and want well-rounded students? Are we very sporty? Is arts our thing? You know, do, do we take students from other more disadvantaged schools maybe and improve them? Like, or are we very selective? H have you found that in, in your experience in the different schools you've worked in and some of the complexities that can come with what is our actual goal in this school? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, sometimes even when there's a glaring goal, uh, that, that can be missed. I really like the work of um, Dan Pink where he, uh, in his book Drive, you might have read it, about mastery, autonomy and purpose. So um, mastery, the ability to get better at something, autonomy, the freedom to be able to do it, and purpose, your why, you know, why, why are you doing it? So I, th I think in a school, establishing your why is the first crucial, crucial aspect. So we were the the school that I'm in now. When I took over, it was a sustaining success model. Really, there was a bit of realignment in the. There was a little bit of turnaround in some departments. There was some accelerated growth across the school. So there were lots of elements you can break down. So yeah, you, you're right that when you come into that, sometimes a sustaining success, which Burnley would be, or where, that my school would be, can be more difficult because you're like, well, what's next? What are we doing next? And you do have um, then to look at your overarching goals. So I think you, if you look at our, our vision, it was it's become world-class and help children make the world a better place. So becoming world-class initially, um, a lot of our staff laughed at it and went, oh, yeah, all right, world-class, that's a nice word. And people call it cheesy. And it is cheesy. It is cheesy. But what I wanted was something that was above what we're doing at the moment because our performance was above the local other, other schools. But being world-class is a standard that people might not understand exactly what it means, but they'll certainly hold you to it when it, when it's not there. So one of the funny stories of one of the kids, I was with a leak in the roof, I'm holding a bucket, the water's coming in, and one of the kids walks past and says, that's not world-class, is it, sir? 
yeah all right brutal but it was great in the sense that kind of walked away and thought actually that language is getting through yeah Um, and now although we might be able to articulate exactly what it is we know what it isn't uh, that was really reassuring i think when you're at burnley or wolves you're now thinking right well what is our next target and can we now look to be more more ambitious to where we are um, uh, that's a that's a challenge, but if you can get individuals' motivation, so if you can then look at individuals and say, well, you know, your top goal scorer's motivation, you might be helping them to get in the England team. Your back four might be um, getting into the uh, to, to concede last goals, and sometimes managers and coaches. I don't know if you watched the Last Dance by Michael Jordan with Michael Jordan in it. Yeah, and Michael yeah. Jordan would talk about he'd create narratives in his head about the people he was playing against because they'd want again and again and again and again and again and he'd create narratives that they hated him that all the odds were stacked against him that the press were against him and it wasn't true he knew he was just making it up in his head and then he'd go and play that game um, so creating a why is really crucial whatever that why is you, you can make it and understanding what, ta- what will tap into the organisationally but even more powerfully, individuals. And, uh, and it's, it, I mean, I could talk about it all day because then you can talk about, well, on that, uh, you've got a continuum then of if you want to get a highly motivated organization, you've got your early uh, innovators who and the early adopters that will jump on board with everything you say. Then you've got your late adopters, sorry, your early adopters and your late adopters. And in the middle of those two, there's a tipping point so in every staff room, every changing room, you have a couple of people who, when they see the value of it, everybody else will as well, because you've got your ones who are dead keen, and then you've got your ones who'll just wait to see if this is going to stick. But those people in the middle, if you can identify them, get them on board, make them leaders in that, and make them feel like they've got a really powerful part in it, you can really accelerate what you do. Phil, do you did you sorry identify pretty early on who maybe your cultural architects were? In, in the schools that you've worked in and do you actually target those staff members early on and maybe bring your new ideas or or you know lean on them or you know directly say I'll give you an example we we have a house system that we put in place just this year just for our lower school and you know we had our house captains and in a year of lockdown there wasn't much for them to do necessarily you know they were behind the screen for a lot of the time but and every single time um, there was a competition or whatever, I'd always say to them, can you drive this? Can you get on board? Can you enter? Can you get people around you? Can you be the role model for the rest of the house? You know, can you get lots of house points yourself individually to, to show that? Because I thought using them would be a really good direct example of what we are looking for. So do you find that in your staff members and kind of grab onto those guys quickly and go, you know, help me out here? Yeah directly yeah absolutely exactly what you described really Sean and I have worked in Saudi we had a house system as well and I uh, we had a, a house captain who I would he, he was a, a sixth form student and everybody looked up to him you know all the children looked up to him so I'd if I wanted him he was front and centre and we had house assemblies house events he'd lead it I'd say right get me a team They'd all flock to him. They'd all want to do it, the youngest kids, the eldest kids. And it turned him from being um, uh, quite quite a difficult character into a real leader in the school because he, he's going to be a leader anyway, so you might as well have him in as a leader of, of positive change. 
put in our staff room, absolutely. So we have um, three people. We've got um, 80 staff all together, and I'd say there are four people. If I have those four people on side, everybody else will, will be on side as well. And I'm not saying that to be, uh, to be manipulative about it because I know those four people will tell me if they don't agree. They'll say, no, it's a lot of rubbish, that. don't do that. And, and that is the thing. We're not, it, it doesn't seem like you're speaking to the, I'm going to jump on board whatever's. You're speaking to the on the fences because they're the barometer. If I pitch it in this way and they tip to the positive, they're going to bring with. If I pitch it this way and they tip to the negative, they're going to, they're going to carry in the other direction. That those on the fences are like that, the, the feedback loop that let you know whether or not, sometimes whether a change is valid, whether it's actually something that needs to happen yeah. or whether whether there's enough uh, instruction or buy-in or language that lets people go, okay, I'm prepared to try this. Absolutely, because quite often I come up with ridiculous ideas yeah. and they will immediately say that's ridiculous, you know, uh, or it might be that, that we're trying to do something and they'll come along and say, well, you know, everybody's really flat out at the moment, everybody's exhausted, this is probably not the best time to yeah. start talking about this. Um, so we've just gone through a school review and then I'm going to go through another school review in July because I want us to get better. And the last school review was really powerful in that we had our teaching staff that were interviewed by the, by the reviewers. They came out with a lot of confidence and one of them actually emailed me and um, one of the, we got really brilliant feedback, but one of the things, the main thing was you're in such a strong position if you want to be world-class, you've now got to innovate and do things that other schools aren't doing um, and work out what your USP is almost because you're, it's everything you do is really good, but how are you going to be the best? Um, and one of the teachers involved, when I gave that feedback, who is you know really strong teacher but pretty quiet, said, actually, I'd like to be involved in that innovation. So you, when you you get those people who are, the, I would call them a, probably a late adopter, um, you get those people on board that's extremely powerful without without forgetting the the loyalty and the uh, not that other people aren't loyal but the the immediate loyalty that you have from your from your early adopters and your pioneers um and I, th this process also gives you a great calmness and clarity because you're not thinking well why don't these people agree with what i'm saying why why, why is this not working because you're working through a process and you know where some people are and then of course you have your laggards at the end so I think that's the, the, the two or three people in my case who, if you said we're going to give you all £100 extra a day, they'd still have something to complain about. Yeah. So you kind of don't ignore them, but except they'll get overwhelmed in the end by the positive change. A topic that we, we picked up on in the last, in the last podcast that Sean and I did, um, and something that I've seen you write a little bit about, where you're talking about this kind of changing for the better, incrementally improving trying something out, getting better at it, that you tie to Toyota and and Mickey's interest in the Toyota leadership models. How much time do you give th that change? Like how, how, and how much autonomy do people have within an organization or should people have within an organization to try stuff out? Because we talked a little bit about uh, having, you know, making our own decisions to try a new thing with a set of criteria about whether or not we just try it when you're incrementally changing or is trying to get better how long do you give people or give yourself in terms of is this an idea that works 
So in my uh, office, we've got a quote on the board from the British rowing team, which is, will it make the boat go faster? And when it comes to innovation or trying things out, if it's something that's going to improve the experience for the staff, the students, the community, then we'll give it as much time as it needs. Uh, if it's something which becomes something that takes away from what we do, which is positive, then we'll, we'll stop doing it. Um, but it might be, so, so we're working on the um, uh, an environmental group at the moment, and that's another innovation. So in that instance, we'll, we'll do it for, uh, well, forever. You know, we'll keep doing it. It's never going to go away. And it'll always be a benefit to the children, the parents and the community and the staff. Uh, if it's something where it's um, a new data report that we do, which uh, might end up taking lots of time and is actually not benefiting anybody, then we'll stop it quickly or we'll re revisit the way we do. The They're the ones things. that get you that instant feedback from the teachers, I bet. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Yeah, that you do get instant feedback from them. Yeah. <laughs> but one, one of the things that we stopped, yeah, exactly. One of the things that we stopped was uh, written reports um, because we, we, and we moved data reports to be in front of parents' evenings. Simply with the school that we have, um, the parents have got access anyway to emails. They can write to teachers. They can speak to them. They were coming in on parents' evenings. So we thought, well, what actual value is the written report giving to a year seven or a year eight? Um, we thought, well, not as much. There'll be some value, but not at the cost of, you know, a week's worth of writing them, a week's worth of checking them, uh, a week's worth of then checking them again and printing them all, by which point they're three weeks old. And then you sent them out in the fourth week. So what you've written a month early may have changed. So we thought, well, actually, that, that system, and, and that's because of the size of our school, it was, it was taking that long to get through the process. So um, we thought, well, that's something we can stop. Um, and that was very, very well received by everybody. Um, and there was, you know, I think when you, you, when you do things like that, when you have innovation, um, either it's give, putting something in or taking it away, you get a flavor of whether that is going to have a long-term benefit, in which case you can let it run for as long as you need to. If it's a short-term benefit you're looking for and you don't get that short-term benefit, you can stop it or you can revise what you did if you still think it's worth it. But more importantly, I think the, the, the notions of Toyota, of Kaizen, and the continuous improvement, the Hansei where it's walking around and um, the Genshi Genbutsu, which is improving little things but seeing it on the shop floor, uh, are things are more processes and um, principles that you don't deviate away from. So it's not necessarily the, 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 the length of time that you give something, but it's a principle that people have got the opportunity that if they come and ask, can I do something, you're more than often than not going to say yes. So it does And there's make a really people... clear reason why it's a no. Yeah. So that the autonomy remains so that they like if they they could have looked it up before they before they got there to know whether it was going to be a yes or a no. It's more of a uh, just informing you that this is a change that's going to happen or a trial that's going to get tried out because yeah. it's really, really obvious when from from those principles when it's going to be a yes or a no. Yeah. And I, most of the time, if, if 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 somebody can come and say, we want to try this, we think we'll improve this. Great. Go and do it then. Why, yeah. why wouldn't you do it? And the, yeah. how are you going to, when I, I would always ask, right, okay, how are we going to check and when are we going to know? So that, um, that, that is to, with, with something that you're looking to improve attainment or reading ages or whatever it might be. Um, but go for it because um, 
they were even if it doesn't work, somebody learns something from it. Yeah. And you're developing your the people within your team or your organization. So I think that that freedom to be able to go and do it is really important in a, in a, if you want to have a, a self-sustaining developing um uh school. I I think as well Matt, that when you do get the staff members that that come and, and look to to make improvements and change it's always for the better it's always for the students and also maybe sometimes for their peers and for their staff members to make life easier for them but for me i think the the kind of overriding thing there is is that they care because if someone's trying to change things it's because they care i think you know and i worry about you know being part of a team where people aren't looking to change or aren't looking to improve and aren't trying to be innovative in what they do um, when they come in to that changing room or to that office or to that school. Um, so, you know, for me in any sort of leadership role, you know, I always want people to come to me and say, look, could we do this? Could we do that? And, and, and you know, not everything's going to work and not everything's going to improve stuff. And sometimes you have to cut things. But I think if someone's going home and thinking, oh, do you know what? I could improve tomorrow at my place of work i think that shows they're bought in you know like if i wanted to come in and say sean i want to coach kabaddi at our, at our college uh i don't know if anyone will take it up can i have can i have an hour on a wednesday afternoon uh you're gonna say yes aren't you sean well always to you mark anyway you know it's always a Kabaddi yes now. it's always a yes I have no idea what he's talking about. Kabaddi. It's, it's, it used to be on really early in the mornings on Channel 4, like yeah, before yeah. school. Uh, and it, it involves running around a tennis court-sized pitch, trying to get... It's basically British Bulldog, but competitively, as with the sense I got. Yeah, yeah. It, well, you, you sort of... I, I played this. I think I was in... Uh, I worked at an outdoor centre in the States, and uh, one team links together arms, mm. and they are aligned. And then you kind of run, yeah, on the other side of this tennis court. But when you're running in, you have to keep saying kabaddi. And you have to touch somebody on the team that's all linked up. And then you have to run back into your end zone. So you, you have to keep saying kabaddi. If you stop saying kabaddi, then you, you've got to go the, back. Then you fail. Then you failed. You've got to touch somebody. And then you've got to get back to your zone without somebody tackling you. I mean, <laughs> it's amazing. I can't believe it's not taken off. I remember oh, being so baffled by it, but just thinking this looks like so much fun when yeah. I watched it before school. I'm going to have yeah. to check that out. Trans World Sport, Channel 4, before It was, school. yeah, but the, the, you'll me. expect a lot of injuries from doing it, you'll say. Yeah, get the old great. risk assessment out yeah. <laughs> for that one. There must be a Kabaddi risk assessment. I'm going to Google it later. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil, obviously we've touched on Sean Dyche um, and, and Oli uh, Gunasosha as well, um, but... You know, in the process of, of, of writing the book and speaking to, you know, so many sort of leaders in the game, what are some of the key takeaways um, that you can kind of maybe um, impart onto our, onto our audience? Um, the, the main one that I always come back to is remembering what you're there to do. I think it's very easy in a leadership role to become emotionally uh, involved in, in a frustration. So let's say somebody is not necessarily behaving in a way that you think will make the boat go faster, to throw back to the earlier uh, quote. And you can get really frustrated and annoyed about it, and I still do. But remembering what you're there to do. So your job is then to either turn that person's approach around, deal with it in a different way, but you your job is to improve their performance in, in the role that they do. And, and that's it. That's it. 
you know, that they're, they're not doing it as a personal slight against you or against the school. It's simply where they're at at that moment in time. So remembering what you're there to do in any given situation, I think is transferable to like Mick would use it in his football matches at half time if they're, if they're 2-0 down and they've conceded two bad goals now he's different in the way he would approach that he'd go in and he remembers what he's there to do he's, that he's there to help them turn that around and stop them from doing it again that's it um, and I think you could do that as a teacher remembering what you're there to do in the classroom remembering what you're there to do when you've got a difficult situation with a parent or a or a, um, or a, anybody in a, in a school setting or a, or a business setting. Um, so I think that's the main takeaway. And then the other takeaway that I've, I've written about is um, to help myself remember it, I've termed it as the three Ps. So your success is based on people, position, your purpose. So people, um, where are your people at? How are they performing? How are they working? What are their interpersonal relationships like? Your position understanding the context which you're operating in and what the needs are of that particular time and that context and the, the community that surrounds you. And then always going back to purpose. What is the purpose? What are the values that you've shared with people that you'll always be held against or held accountable to? Awesome. And uh, we ask all of our guests um, to to give us someone who's kind of influenced them in their journey, in their, in, in their leadership. And we like to say that coaches make coaches. Um, so could you maybe tell us anyone that's kind of influenced you um, in in how you approach things, how you work in a team as a as a team member and obviously as a leader? Yeah, I'd say I worked in uh, Wigan with a head teacher called... Um, uh, Mark Dummikin and I've worked with lots of good um, head teachers and coaches. But what, what I think Mark did really well, and he, and he sort of coached me in this, he's a really good cultural architect. His example when the, his example when nobody's looking was something I always admired. Um, the way he looks out for people who were ill, who aren't in work, or the way he would do a lunch duty and circle the school so that other staff could have a full lunch hour. Um, the way he would, if there was trouble outside of school, he'd be there in the front to make sure that the student got home safely. And he and he never looked for any glory for that or any, he just did what he believed was the right thing and embodied what he wanted his school culture to be like. So I would say that that was somebody truly authentic, genuine, and something we refer to a lot to in, in Catholic schools and in Christian Catholic leadership is being a servant leader. So serving people rather than it being something that is all about you. And I think Mark embodied a servant leader. Amazing. I, and I'd like just to nod to the fact that you may be the most qualified person to answer coaches make coaches with the content of your book. <laughs> which, co- <laughs> yeah. which Premier League coach has a... <laughs> that's immense. And it's something that I think both Sean and I experienced as school members when someone is doing that. When, uh, like you say, when no one is watching like what's the example they set and I can think of literally I can think of one from this week where a person just staggered me with the simplicity and directness of their care for students and it was it's it's something else when you witness it yeah and then the last thing that we ask is um obviously we'll put a link to the book uh, wherever you would rather people go to buy it in the show notes we'll also put a link to uh, Dan Pink in there and some of the other stuff that we've mentioned so that people can check out some of the references is there anything else you want to plug or you want to put people onto no I think well our audio book's coming out on the 10th of June so if you're, if you're a lazy reader like me who likes 
reading books and walking the dog at the same time, then the audio book's out on the 10th of June too. So that's Phenomenal. really exciting. Yeah, it's got. It's not my voice. It's a very uh, sultry, uh, yeah, glamorous voice that uh, they, they put on top of it. So it'll make me sound better. <laughs> the well. Hollywood so, Phil Denton. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Sean <Sh> Sh Sh <laughs> Dyche. <laughs> it's not Sean Dyche, no. <laughs> Stop, stops at his chapter and goes, hang on a second. Um, brilliant. We'll make sure we put links uh, to, to where you can pick up that as well or where you can pre-order that in the show notes as well. Um, thank you so much, Phil, for coming on. This is, this is uh, again, the end of, the end of a, a pretty long term. So uh, hope, hopefully you're about to have some well-deserved rest. Thank you for taking a chunk of it to talk to Sean and I. Uh, about the book and about leadership it's been utterly fascinating brilliant no thank you very much it's been a real pleasure and uh, uh, hope all goes well with the podcast in the future thank you so much phil it's been an absolute pleasure um i'll be ordering i might go audiobook now now that that's coming out i might go audiobook on my runs i'm a, I'm a keen runner so maybe i'll i'll be listening to that uh on my runs. so phil thank you again uh real pleasure great thank you Did not disappoint, no? No, absolutely. We could have spoken for a lot longer around the book and because there were so many people that he he, he has spoken to, um, you know, and I could have just deep dived into just every single manager and <laughs> yeah, just you, found like, every I, I, last drop. There was one point in the middle where I thought you were going to mention every mid-table premiership team uh, <laughs> just, to, just to see whether he got some insights. I don't know if that was the trip to William Hill. <laughs> in our future. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, incredible. It's really interesting to, for him to say kind of Manchester United is seen as a blue chip kind of organisation. But then when you kind of get into the four walls, it's still very much that family club of, you know, 20, that 30, kind of 40 seven, years seven, ago. 70s, 70s photograph vibe of Manchester United and football managers that you get. Exactly. And, you know, the fact that a lot of managers who are maybe blue chip managers, so to speak, are going in and expecting one thing and maybe not understanding the fabric so much, um, which, you know, whatever people think of, of Oli, um, he's understood that, mm. you know, he's understood that fabric because he's been there and he's seen it. Um, so that was really, really interesting. And super, fasc um, super fascinating that like with us talking about change so much at the moment, like to introduce me, I don't know if you knew about the, the, the stars model and that kind of sense of know where the organization is at that you're walking into and how that no, yeah, I didn't affects know that. the change so that, you know, are we, are we in a, are we in complete restart? Are we in sustain? Sustain? Are we, you know, what change is needed here and in what way like that was yeah to get to get into that was fascinating for me because that's not a model i knew no same and and that's why you know a big part of us doing this podcast is for people who are in teams or leading teams to kind of pick up on on some of these more kind of niche intricate parts of leadership that unless you're sort of really getting in uh, involved in it you you may not stumble across um and by having great guests on they can always sort of bring something to the to the table um so so i really enjoyed that i, I just i was quite interested in the fact that he was a history teacher as well just because of the whole kind of football and the head teacher i didn't quite put history teacher in there but that it makes a lot of sense why he would be interested in leadership from a kind of historical point of view i i mean it it talks to the you know what i found the biggest benefit of chatting to so many 
varied people is that there is this stuff that applies across the board and there's also stuff that if you look at it from the perspective that's not yours it just unlocks it for you so the idea that a, a football coach a history teacher and a head teacher a school leader like they can have three separate perspectives but that there is this crossover in the venn diagram uh, that makes sense or if like you know we go back far back and we're talking to orchestra leader or we're talking to uh, expedition leader or we're talking to you know performance coach uh, that there is something from theirs that will unlock it for someone who's n doing something completely different absolutely absolutely and and i think as well just to touch on and i guess we could put a link um in the show notes as well uh, just with regards to the charity that this book was for because it's actually that you know they've not made profit from this book it's all the proceeds are going um to um the charity so yeah, it's I think the len the, cool len, well. the len john rose trust which is a motor neuron uh motor neuron disease association uh, affiliated charity um and yeah we'll put we'll put a link in as well but uh, i think one of the best ways to support that charity would be to buy the book or the audio book because it, uh, it sounds like there's some gold in there 100% I will be ordering. Uh, so that's us. That's us for today. We would love your support. If you like what we do and you want to suggest a guest for us, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn. Our bios are in the show notes or you can email us Mark or Sean at noipodcast.show. Uh, you can also hit us up on all the social medias uh, except for TikTok. We're not really TikTokers. Uh, at noipodcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you do if you do want to uh buy us a coffee uh you can jump onto ko-fi.com slash no i podcast and uh donate a little bit of money to buy us a gail's cappuccino uh gail's please sponsor us for free cappuccinos but all we really want is for you guys to keep listening enjoying feeding back reaching out to us uh letting us know who you want to hear from next letting us know who you've enjoyed so that we can keep on uh like uh Phil was saying, you know, getting better each time. Uh, only thing left is uh, for me to say goodbye from Sean. Goodbye, guys. And goodbye from me. Goodbye. You must be like the Wolfpack. Teamwork. Yes.